Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply growing delta between the benefit you may get from the sentencing guidelines, they're, con- they're obviously continuing to have to increase the carrot relative to the size of the stick here because I don't, people I'm talking to are telling me they're not getting the response they thought they would get for companies coming forward. That was Ryan Patrick. Ryan is the former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Texas. And in this podcast, we take a wide-ranging discussion of how a U.S. attorney's office will implement changes to the corporate enforcement policy, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, and the doctrines set forth in the Monaco Memo. If you're a compliance professional, white-collar practitioner, or interested in these topics, you need to check out this podcast. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Before we get to them, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and you are in for a treat today, as always, because I'm in for a treat. And I have with me Ryan Patrick. Ryan, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Oh, Tom, my pleasure. So we are going to geek out on the Monaco police speeches, the changes to the corporate enforcement policy, and the 2023 version of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, but with a spin not from the compliance professional perspective, but really from the perspective, rather, of a AUSA, former U.S. District Attorney for the Southern District of Texas, and a line prosecutor. So, Ryan, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Certainly. I have an undergraduate degree from Baylor University, from Texas, grew up in the the Houston area, went to Baylor, worked for a couple years and decided to go back to school, ended up at South Texas College of Law not even wanting to be a practicing lawyer, yet here I am. Um, I worked at the district attorney's office in Harris County for about six and a half years, tried everything under the sun, was a district court judge for about four and a half years, was in private practice for a year waiting for my nomination to go through, and was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Texas for uh, just over three years. And where are you now? 
Now I'm a partner in the white collar section in our white collar group at Haynes and Boone. I'm in our Houston office, and this week is my two-year anniversary. Well, congratulations. We have had just a ton of announcements in the compliance and greater white collar prosecution and defense world literally since January. And I really want to start with, I guess, the most recent, which were the speeches by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco and Kenneth Polite. And what would, if you were still sitting in the Southern District of Texas office, would you be talking to prosecutors? Would there be meetings or roundtables discussing these speeches? As I understand it, they talk and you implement. How do you implement? So it's an interesting dynamic. Being the U.S. attorney, you are an island unto yourself in many respects, uh, but there's still plenty of things that happen within the federal prosecution and, and civil prosecution and civil defense space that still has to go through main justice, has to go through DOJ. Um, well, when I was U.S. attorney and, and even now in private practice, I, I try to stay on top of the speeches and the, the memos that come out of DOJ. But most line prosecutors don't. That's, that's not – they don't have the bandwidth for it. It's not in the practice group they may be in. It's not something they need to worry about. So all of this corporate enforcement and compliance – That's been streaming out even during the last administration when the pilot program started. That's not something most line prosecutors, maybe unless they're very specific in the fraud space um, or they work with some of the DOJ components that do say FCPA matters, they may not know what's out there. So what's very interesting in all of this is I was on a panel. Billy Jacobson was on the panel. I I had not met Billy before. Um, And it was at the uh, ACI FCPA conference in Houston back in January. And one of the things I brought up when I was giving sort of the U.S. attorney perspective to enforcement and compliance in these areas, I even said, with all of this new messaging, it will be very interesting if corporations find themselves in investigations in a local U.S. attorney's office, and they may be coming to the U.S. attorney wanting some of the same considerations in a local prosecution that DOJ is messaging nationally and internationally. And i And I mentioned I think that would be a a very interesting dynamic if that ever comes up. Well, like two or three weeks later, they announced the new U.S. attorney, this this memo, internal memo that was was made publicly available, that one of the uh, attorney general's advisory committees was put together to implement basically this corporate enforcement policy immediately in U.S. attorney's offices. And after I read that memo and looked back at the other messaging, I've kind of scratched my head to figure out I'm not exactly sure what this is for. That is absolutely consistent with other former AUSAs I've talked to where they did sort of head scratching. And so what does it mean? And it really struck me when the new corporate enforcement policy came out, the breadth and scope. So I play in the anti-corruption space. I'm in the FCPA world, completely consistent with messaging I'd heard literally for years from the Department of Justice. But it seemed to me that this broadened beyond simply anti-corruption and FCPA, and whether it be fraud, whether it be antitrust, whether it be environmental, whether it be a wide variety of other types of issues that an AUSA and a local district attorney, U.S. district attorney's office would prosecute, it seemed to me to at least open uh, the door for a discussion around things like self-disclosure, mm-hmm. cooperation credit. is, And it, that's really why I was so intrigued to talk to you, because it seemed to me that there was really an evolution in thinking from the Department of Justice. Would that be a fair assessment? I, th- I think that is a, a certainly fair assessment. The, Of course, 
you know, one of the recent rebrandings is, is dropping the idea that this is FCPA and making corporate enforcement. All of the DOJ criminal components now have to come up with their own policies and they're rolling those out. They're all generally looking the same and tailored to their specific practice area. But what I, what I find interesting is asking the U.S. attorney's offices now to step into this space where really thinking from the idea of, of self-disclosure and from monitoring or aud- you know, auditing, so to speak, someone's compliance program, that is not – well, let me back up a little bit. I think, Tom, you and I could easily – there's 94 U.S. attorney's offices in the country. I think you and I could easily come up with a list of probably four that any sort of corporate compliance program will be relevant in. Um, a couple in the East Coast, maybe Houston, maybe the Southern District of Texas, and a couple other major metropolitan areas. I mean, Houston, we're the energy capital of the world. You know, Tom, you know this area very well, but some of the listeners may not. It's the energy capital of the world. We have massive you know, medical facility, research facilities. Texas A&M is in the district. Everything on the border. SpaceX is here now. NASA. There's a lot of areas where compliance and large, large companies with sophisticated internal investigation compliance programs exist. But those are not the targets, typically, of a local U.S. attorney's office. So if I'm a, if I'm a large company, what's interesting is if you read, the, there's a little bit of, it's not fine print, it, it's in there. In the memo that went out to the U.S. attorneys from this committee, there is a comment in there that discusses turf battles. And if there is a crossover with another DOJ component or another U.S. attorney's office, that that has to be resolved or there has to be consultation. Well, Tom, I can tell you as U.S. attorney, that happened all of the time in run-of-the-mill vanilla cases, let alone anything this complex. And so I'm just not sure who this is, other than maybe some good messaging, who this is really targeted towards. Because if if I'm inside, and of course, this is now what I do in private practice the last two years, I, I work on some of these issues. If, if, I, if I'm a company, if I'm in-house, or I am advising a company, and they think they have well, an issue, one, if you want to self-disclose, who's really going to be the prosecutor? If, if, if you go to the local U.S. attorney or wherever venue may be appropriate, is it a case DOJ is still going to come in and grab anyway because they're the subject matter experts? Or is it something that if it really belongs or could belong in a U.S. attorney's office, is there anybody in that office who speaks this language, who has any of this institutional knowledge? And the answer is, in most offices, no, because that's, this is not the type of case that a U.S. attorney's office is going to handle individually. There's very few offices that are going to have prosecutors that have that background Certainly in private practice or in compliance, that's going to be very rare and very thin, but know what a compliance program should look like. Know what, know the vocabulary. Just know how these things are structured and what they look like. Um, you know, there's a reason tax matters are all prosecuted at DOJ. They want the tax code uniformly handled. There's a reason FCPA is. There's a reason all these different areas are. And now you're asking corporate compliance to be, quote, uniformly handled. But in 94 districts, that's just not going to happen. So when I talk to white-collar defense lawyers in the FCPA space, they say one of the, not perhaps most difficult, but hardest conversations a corporation has is whether or not to self-disclose under the FCPA. And it's a very big decision. It has lots of implications. And it needs to be a well-reasoned decision, yes or no. Now, let me ask you, as a white-collar defense practitioner in your current role, um, having those conversations with corporations not in the FCPA context? Is this concept going to be foreign to them? Will their general counsel be at least 
aware of what a self-disclosure is? And will those conversations be harder on cases that are not FCPA or perhaps antitrust cases? It is difficult. And and one of the, the recurring themes that I've heard in different conferences I've been to and speeches I've, I've heard presented and, and some of the things I've run across in, in my practice, I've been one of, I've been sort of banging the drum in, in, in a handful of the events that I've spoken to or presented at here in the Houston area in the last couple of months is this idea of CCO certification and, and compliance and this expansion of, of Caremark and these ideas. And there's, there's been some pushback, oh, you know, under in, in the financial regular, you know, regulatory spaces, they've been doing this forever. We know how to do this, but there's an entirely different um, just an entirely different ecosystem of companies and compliance that this is foreign to. And again, there, if you're not going to get full compliance credit under these new guidelines, if you are a highly regulated industry and you have to disclose anyway, then right now there is no, I don't think there's much of a track record yet to tell a company, yes, we should just self-disclose in many instances. I think it's a, it, I can tell you, it's a very difficult conversation and a difficult difficult decisions to make. There's there's no requirement in a lot of these areas to self-disclose. So what are they getting out of? And then if the conversation could be, well, this is something that maybe would be prosecuted by the local U.S. attorney, well, then who are we actually going to go talk to that speaks our language, that actually knows what the problems are? I'll tell you something interesting, Tom, that I, I didn't even realize. When I was at ABA White Collar, one of my former white collar prosecutors, he's been at the office probably 30 years, was presenting on a panel I happened to be sitting in. I didn't know he was going to be on the panel. And he mentioned, he, he was asked a question uh, uh, generally in this area, and he pointed me out. I figured he might say something or wave to me from the stage, but he actually said, during my time as U.S. attorney, we had, I think he said, three or four uh, DPAs or NPAs in the fraud white-collar space in the U.S. attorney's office where I think he said that 15 years prior they'd done two. And he said, the reason for that, and I didn't know those numbers. He said, the reason for that is, is he points to me, he said, because the U.S. attorney went out into the business community, went out to the defense bar and told them what he was expecting and what he was willing to entertain and consider. Um, now, those numbers aren't dramatic, but I think that's sort of the idea that DOJ is trying to do is if we message it, this is what we want. Hopefully we will get it back. I mean, I'm, I made it very clear, hey, to my prosecutors in the defense bar, C pleas are okay. With me, if, if you've got a reason to do it where you can work out what the punishment is uh, on the front end, if the many judges don't like it, if they're amenable to that, that's fine. If it's an NPA or a DPA or a non-prosecution, you know, if it's a declination, bring it to me. I will consider it um, because it's not one size fits all. Obviously, that's what DOJ is trying to do. And everybody I talk to and a lot of the, I don't know if the same people, but same type of people, Tom, you're talking to is I don't think DOJ is seeing the results they hoped for a couple of years ago. If a Houston-based company has an environmental securities, some type of potential violation that's not an FCPA violation, do they pick up the phone and call the U.S. attorney for the Southern District? Do they call an AUSA? How do they even think through who do we self-report to locally? So I also – this also came up with the panel. This is what I was asked to, to sort of pontificate on at, at the FCPA conference in January – is I said it's interesting because we had some large FCPA cases still still being prosecuted here in, in the Southern District of Texas, where DOJ is the lead and they take the laboring oar, but there's still local counsel involved from the local U.S. Attorney's Office. And what I told all the, the folks in that ballroom is I said, look, 
if you are in a situation, Tom, no doubt you've probably been in the situation where the, the primary attorneys are coming in from out of town. They're not, they're not local. They don't know the judges. They don't know the local prosecutors, but maybe there's pool counsel. There's local defense attorneys brought in to handle, you know, different groups involved. Those are the attorneys picking up the phone and calling the U.S. attorney because they know me or they know the line prosecutors because those relationships are there because those line prosecutors have been there a long time. Those defense attorneys have been there a long time. They all know each other. The criminal bars in most cities is a pretty small bar. So if you're a company, you need to make sure you're actually talking to lawyers who know that jurisdiction, who knows the U.S. attorney, who knows the head of the fraud section, if the office is large enough to have its own standalone fraud section, who knows the criminal chief, who knows the first assistant, because that's the avenue you're going to have to go in to begin and you know begin to have those conversations. But again, in the guidelines that were issued to the local offices, there's still that requirement to not necessarily notify right away DOJ, but still consult. And there's a little bit of mixed messaging I see where U.S. attorneys are are free to make these decisions as they seem fit. But at the same time, it is clear Maine Justice is going to want to be looped in on these issues. So one of the clear messages I receive from Kenneth Polite in announcing changes to the corporate enforcement policy is the DOJ re-emphasized that they want companies to self-disclose and to come in and I thought fairly dramatically increase the potential discount for even egregious conduct if it's found. Is is that your sense of what DOJ and or Kenneth Polite was trying to emphasize that they really want companies to come in and self-disclose? The, the, the way I the way I'm perceiving this and the feedback I'm getting from other practitioners is the the incentives to come forward, whether it is a whether on a DPA or an NPA or even a guilty plea, this 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 growing delta between the benefit you may get from the sentencing guidelines, they're can they're obviously continuing to have to increase the carrot relative to the size of the stick here, because I don't, the the people I'm talking to are telling me they're not getting the response they thought they would get for companies coming forward. And I understand why they want that. And I understand why that Delta is widening because they want to sweeten this, this offer. From my perspective now on the defense side, what I could see, it may be in a circuit like the fifth circuit, I could see taking up an issue like this is, well, at some point, Will some maybe employee that gets thrown under the bus or they're perceived to have been thrown under the bus by their corporation or feel like they've been done wrong by the corporation's inside or outside counsel making some sort of now Fifth Amendment claim that the company is now more or less being deputized by the government and is doing all of the FBI, doing all of DOJ or HSI's bidding in some of these enforcement actions where now they've completely severed that relationship, that the company is now acting as an actor of the state. It's a little bit of a stretch, and it may sound a little chicken little, the sky is falling, but I could see a situation. I could certainly figure out a situation where it gets bad enough for certain groups, maybe within a company, uh, that they go and make those claims. And I could see some judges grabbing onto that and thinking, yeah, I'm going to start to buy into this because the companies are now so incentivized to work with and turn basically everything over. And even the messaging on attorney-client privilege is, I think, still – I think they're trying to have it both ways where DOJ is saying, we, we, we respect the attorney-client privilege, but you got to make sure you give us everything. Th- there's going to be you know, bad cases, make bad case law, and one of these is bound to happen. I'm so glad you brought that up. You said a ton in there that I want to follow up on. 
start with bad facts make bad law. Uh, the absolutely axiomatic for case law going forward. But uh, your larger point on the attorney-client privilege and or discovery, we've had a couple of federal district judges clearly express unease. Jed Rakoff in New York is the most prominent that comes to mind. We currently have a criminal prosecution involving two senior executives from a company called Cognizant Technologies. Cognizant settled an FCPA case very favorably because of very self, very aggressive self-disclosure and cooperation. And the two executives now have convinced the U.S. federal district judge that outside counsel has to give basically everything to them in their defense that they gave to the Department of Justice, but beyond simply what they gave to the Department of Justice, which I think is consistent with current rules, or of anything that went into their thought process. So we're about to have a huge uh, change in that. But your point about our outside counsel now deputized, that brings up huge criminal procedural implications. And um, if we think you're right, it would be very interesting in Texas and the Fifth Circuit for some of the judges to opine on that. And I think you're spot on that one case is going to come along and the whole thing is going to change. So absolutely, worried about that for a long, long time. No, I, I, I think as, as some of these issues com, you know, continue to, to materialize and, and we see this, we, we see this cooperation and coordination between the, the government investigators and the private, private companies, investigators and lawyers and this back and forth, it, it, it's going to, it's going to create more of these issues. And I, I can see this happening. Um, you know, will it ever materialize in, in, in the worst possible way? I don't know. Um, but, but it is certainly a concern for me. In December of 2021, the Biden administration elevated the fight against anti-corruption to a national security issue. Uh, I think in the Trump administration, beginning in the Trump administration and into this administration, we've seen export control and trade sanctions be very important, and particularly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a series of very robust export control sanctions. Anti-money laundering is also a very high priority for the Department of Treasury. And I have heard comments from all of those departments, including the Department of Justice, which almost leads me to conclude that they view corporations as perhaps not partners, but as part of the solution in at least those areas of fight. And one, I wanted to ask you if you had that sense too, but uh, does that type of, I hate to use the word partnership, but I'm I'm really loathe to figure out what other word to use, that type of relationship work in other white collar criminal prosecutions that you or your team would have uh, done when you were the U.S. attorney? So one of the short answer is yes. Um, with the Southern District of Texas goes from north of Houston all the way down to the border. It has seven offices. It has Laredo to Brownsville, five counties along the border. Ground zero for everything that's border-related is happening for the most part in the Southern District of Texas. And because of that, there is a lot of uh, – the, the, the best analogy I, I can share that's, that's sort of easy and, and that I can share are a lot of the kleptocracy cases that were prosecuted in the Southern District of Texas. And kleptocracy is the basically – foreign government officials stealing money and laundering into the U.S. A a lot of former Mexican officials, whether they were federal government or state government actors in in the Mexican states, stealing uh, public money in some form or fashion and laundering into the U.S. A lot of it goes into real estate, 
uh, commercial real estate, residential real estate, a lot of different areas. And a lot of that money ends up in Texas. And we had some amazing money laundering prosecutors, some amazing OSADEF, which is the large organized crime and, and drug task force prosecutors. And there's an a- analogy there where that is definitely not only a, a money laundering and public finance type protections, but also there are national security interests in there. There's international diplomatic interest there with NASA here, with some of our large research institutions, especially with the Texas Medical Center here in Houston, largest collection of hospitals in the world. Um, you had a lot of um, a lot of investigations looking at different foreign actors and what they were doing to get in with private companies, various types of contractors, pseudo quasi government private agencies, um, and the feedback I always got was companies in this space were very interested to know if they were doing business with people their due diligence did not catch, that they did not otherwise want to do business with. And I think there is a level of cooperation, and I think there is a level of interest from the private sector to cooperate more with the federal government in those cases, different and apart from some of the others. Now, trying to get around sanctions to uh, the type of oil for food type investigations and those deals, that's that's maybe a little different, where where maybe they they know they are trying to evade some black letter law. But when it gets into sort of the reverse or or U.S.-based companies or companies doing a lot of work in the U.S., unknowingly doing work with with people who are otherwise not welcomed in the U.S., that's a a different dynamic. And one of the things the FBI has done for years, and I give them credit, they've been very proactive going into industry, particularly in the research area, in the – all of the areas where there's a lot of IP theft that's going overseas, they've been very good in doing that messaging to the companies and giving them defensive briefings and letting them know where their vulnerabilities are. So there is some connective tissue in some of those areas that maybe there aren't in other investigative areas and some other industries, but I do know that exists. You know, I'm not quite sure when I wrote out this outline for this podcast uh, was where this podcast would go. <laughs> this is just absolutely <laughs> fabulous. Let me maybe take a step back and, and look at some of the broader policy issues by these changes. And first of all, if you know, could you describe the internal DOJ process to make the decision uh, for the changes that we saw announced in the corporate enforcement policy? So does that include input from any of the U.S. attorney's offices? Is it a policy task force within the DOJ? Could you, If you know, could you describe that generally? You know, I, I don't know how the Biden administration is doing it, but I can – you know, I can tell you how it worked in the Trump administration, and it is probably somewhat similar, which is you do see discussion about the AGAC. It's the Attorney General's Advisory Committee. Different attorney generals are going to lean on that group more than others. But what that is, it's a collection of all the U.S. attorneys, and we're all asked for our input in different types of committees. I was on the border, whether I wanted to or not. I was on the border subcommittee. I was on violent crime, and I was on asset forfeiture. Uh, those are my, those are my three primary committees, and then COVID happened, and we never got reshuffled or, or reassigned anything else. Now, if there were issues related to those topics, sometimes the the DAG's office, at least Monaco's office, now would reach out to that committee and say, "Hey, we'd like your input in X, Y, and Z." I don't know if we had any ad hoc committees put together for a specific issue, like it looks like the U.S. Attorney Corporate Enforcement Policy was put together. Um, but that is, if they wanted the input from from those of us out in the field. They would ask for it. Sometimes we would provide it when we weren't asked for it. And you can imagine how that went over sometimes. 
I can tell you certainly in the immigration and border areas where I was up to my neck in that, the, the five U.S. attorneys along the border, we had regular calls amongst each other. We were regular communication with DOJ on different areas there where they were asking our input, what's going on on the ground? So no doubt they're going to reach out to the subject matter experts or the people who are in the line of fire, so to speak, in some of those areas. But at the end of the day, everybody, and I sort of take the view, everybody in the executive works for the president. So whatever those policies and procedures are that they want implemented through the various officials, at the end of the day, that's what you're going to do. If that's what you're asked to do and give input to, okay, this is going to be our policy. How do we make this work within this framework? There's more of a lot of, we're going to jam this peg into this hole. Sometimes it's going to fit better than others, but this is what the outcome, not necessarily what the outcome needs to be, but this is what our our preferred process is going to be. Now let's make it work. So that's the kind of input that we would be asked for and give back. I'm assuming it works something similar to that. Let me end by asking, taking a little bit different route and ask you, what were a couple of, of the highlights for you as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Texas? It was, first I'll tell you, Tom, it was an amazing job. Um, getting, to, getting to work with and know all the different agencies, what's, what's amazing about the Southern District of Texas is a little bit, uh, we stay in the shadow a little bit from, from a lot of the attention, which is nice. It's the largest criminal docket in the country. So of the 94 U.S. Attorney's offices, the Southern District of Texas accounts for, well, it's interesting, us in the Western District, which is San Antonio, Alto, El Paso, in our internal numbers, you could actually hit a radio button to take us out of the numbers because of everything border-related, guns and drugs, and because it, it skewed all the national numbers. But we alone accounted for, I mean, I think we, we indicted our 25,000, 30,000 people. We accounted about 11% of all appellate work in the country in any given year. I mean, it was a big office, and it was a lot of fun. But what was interesting is everything that DOJ does touched our district. Everything that's big city related, big city crime issues, whether it was drugs, guns, violent crime, Houston's in the middle of that. When it came to corporate enforcement type things, Houston's in the middle of that. We have more Fortune 500 companies, I think, in the greater Houston area than anywhere outside New York City. I think we have the third most consulates in the country of any other city. All of the, all of the industry that's centered here, that's focused here, and then everything down south, everything that's that's border related also comes into that. So we touch on everything, which is great because when you need to get the resources, DOJ understands that this is a district that needs those resources, but it goes both ways. Not only did we have great access into Washington, Washington also had no qualm picking up the phone and poking into our work down here and asking what we were doing or, or getting involved with us. So it went both ways. It was, it was fascinating. I will say though, that um, if I have to put up sort of a couple things, one is very sad, but it was a, but it was a it just it showed how as the, the head of FBI San Antonio, who I got to know, he covered my border districts, he said, you know, when we mash the big red button and the cavalry has to show up, it happens. And it's true. It really does. We had the terrible school shooting at Santa Fe High School, which is just south of Texas. My myself and and a couple of my prosecutors, we spent hours out, 15, 16 hours out there you know, working with the local first responders, with the, the feds, with the Galveston County ended up filing charges. That was a day where you had everybody in law enforcement coming together with something very tragic and, and working together. Uh, but we had, you know, Tom, look, we, we had a, we had the largest government shutdown while I was U.S. attorney. We had a cargo plane crash right outside Houston when I was U.S. attorney. We had everything with the issues with the, the border fence and, and zero tolerance and all these other issues. We had new policies that went into elder abuse that was focused, that Houston was a focused city for. 
new new issues with the IRS, criminal investigators trying to deal with guns, some old legacy ATF regulations that still belong to IRS and gun running down south. I mean, we were in the middle of everything. So I don't know if there's one thing I can sort of point to and I say, wow, I'm really glad we were able to do this other than I was able to hire about 90 new assistant U.S. attorneys while I was while I was U.S. attorney. We got the resources we needed. Most districts did. And hopefully we set those offices up for, uh, you know, continuing on. But I will tell you, the former U.S. attorney community is a pretty tight group. And we all, the, the, the Trump U.S. attorneys, we got to know each other pretty well. We're actually all getting together at the end of March. And the few U.S. attorneys I've been, I, I know my successor here in Houston. I know some of the other ones in Texas. I've met some of the other ones around the country. And it's a very, it's a very interesting sort of club to be in because there's really no other job like it. You don't really have a boss. You do, you do report to the deputy attorney general. But at the end of the day, you're appointed by the president. And really, only the president can fire you. Of course, they, they call DOJ and say, hey, go fire that guy down there. They will. But it's an interesting position to be in within the dynamics of DOJ and, and how that operates. But I don't know if that answered your question, Tom, but I love that job. Uh, for those listening to this podcast and not watching my YouTube channel, the smile on his face when he said, I love that job, really says everything I could have asked for. Ryan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information about yourself, your practice, or any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best place or places for them to go? So I'm easy to find online. I'm on LinkedIn, Ryan Patrick. You can search me on LinkedIn, find me, and a quick internet search of Haynes and Boone and my name, Ryan Patrick. You'll come up. Uh, there's plenty of information on our, our firm's website about me, my practice, and, and what I'm up to. And uh, I even have, I don't know if you've seen them, Tom, I, I do my goofy little challenge coin videos on LinkedIn. That's, that, that's become a thing. I have all these on the video. You, whoop, you can see them behind me there. Uh, the whole the story, that, that's another story for another day. But no, I'm, I'm easy to find and uh, uh, you know, happy to talk to folks or reach out. Ryan, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Certainly, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you'd like to be a guest on the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm always looking for folks. Or if you'd like to be on one of my other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. The FCPA Compliance Report, of course, is the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report, and it's a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.